Lord's Day. Uh, my name's John. I'm a pastor at Bethany Baptist Church. Uh, the saints there give you greetings. It's so good to see your faces. Um, one of the blessings of being able to go to the Together for the Gospel conference in April was being able to meet Trevor and, and getting a, a, being able to meet different brothers that are serving in our area that I didn't even know existed. So up until a couple months ago, I had no idea you guys were here. Uh, and, and it brings me great joy to bring you God's word. You know, uh, I don't know many of you. I barely know Trevor. Uh, but even though I don't know you personally, uh, I know that in Christ, you and I are family. That, that even though we might not know each other personally, we might not have had conversations, I look forward to getting, know, getting to know each of you. That, that in Christ, we're family. And we're going to have some time this morning and for the rest of eternity to get to know each other. I'm looking forward to spending this time with you in God's word. Um, it is a weird thing to be asked to guest preach at a church and be asked to preach on a passage uh, that's primarily a rebuke. Um, so I'm going to have some negative things to say. But uh, hopefully, as we learn from God's word, we'll be able to have a better understanding of what, of what Christ desires for us in our relationship with one another, uh, with your fellow church members and and, and with other brothers and sisters are in the body of Christ. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. What I'll do is I'll read the entirety of the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll go ahead and get started. And for those of us who are joining us via video cam and watching online, I, I know that trying to watch online for spiritual encouragement is like trying to cook dinner with an easy-bake oven. So I'm just glad that, that you're able to listen to me preach here, and I, I pray that encourages you as well. James chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. And God's word says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. as why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. 
Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We, we do believe the words that we just sang earlier, that we've seen you move, and we believe that you'll do it again, even in times where we may not understand that you are faithful in the midst of, of our doubts and insecurity and our weakness, that you are faithful. And so, Lord, as we look towards this passage, we know, God, that if your spirit doesn't help us, our ears will be deaf, Our hearts will be closed. We'll be unable to truly comprehend the glories of your word. So we ask God that your spirit would help us. Give us a supernatural strength to hear your word, to understand it, and to obey it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dr. Phil is right. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. It doesn't take long to live life to realize that that conflicts come, that interacting with other people that are also hurt inevitably leads to relational hurt, to conflict, to beef with other folks. And, And when you get into relational conflicts, there are bad causes and reasons why conflict happens all over the place. So-and-so said this, and it really set you off. This person just didn't give me that side-eye three weeks ago. We wouldn't be in this mess. This person just took the time to, to understand what I was thinking and where I'm coming from. Then we wouldn't be in a fight. But what James is saying in James 4 is that the real cause of the conflict that arises from a among us isn't something outside of us, but something within. That, that when you engage in, in relational conflict and, and beef with other people, that's not indicative of the issues that they have, even though, let's be real, they have issues. That's actually indicative of a deeper hurt within us. That comes from our own sinful des- desires, from our own sin. So, surprisingly, in order to fix our relational conflicts with those outside of us, we need to begin with ourselves. We need to begin with ourselves. So this is the main command from James chapter 4 for us this morning. Submit to God. Submit to God. That's what James wants us to do. He, He sees the mess of churches that are in conflict with one another. He tells them, Nora, fix your beef with other people. This is what you need to do. You need to submit to God. And he gives kind of three commands in succession here in this passage. First, see. See. Second, submit. And third, stop. Again, that's see, submit, and stop. Okay. First, let's look at see. James wants us to see your evil desires. To see your evil desires. So let's look again at verse 1. James says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? James looks at the violence and and, and the quarrels and the wars that are waged outside in the Christian community, and he says that that violence comes from within. Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew 15. That's not what comes into your mouth that defiles you, but, but what comes out. And James is making a prognosis. He's identifying the problem that, that if people are in conflict with one another, the reason is because there are conflicts from inside. From inside. And the, and the words that he uses here for you isn't referring to you individually. right? Like what's going on with you? He, he's actually saying a plural you or a southern y'all. Right? What causes quarrels and fights among y'all? Don't they come from the desires that come within y'all's members or, or your body? And someone might listen to that and say, yeah. And the problem is that part of the body. But the reality is that in any conflict, the priority should be yourself and your evil desires before you see anything in a neighbor. See, the evil that comes out when when we get into conflicts with other people actually comes from within us. That before we should point the finger at someone else, we should take the time for for self-examination. James continues in verse 2. You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. James roots our violent disobedience with what we lack. That the reason why we're reacting this way is predominantly, not just because of of our dissatisfaction with what's outside, but our dissatisfaction, period. That conflicts come out of deficiency. Like a child who throws a tantrum when they don't get to play with your cell phone. See, satisfying worldly desires is, is like drinking salt water for hydration. The more you drink, the, the thirstier you get. And, and anything that you desire that isn't God just simply won't nourish you. It won't last It's not enough. And so you hunger and you thirst and you grab and you seek for more. And out of the vacuum that's inside your heart, it leads you towards hate against your neighbor, against your brother or sister. You see, envy is the sign of spiritual malnutrition. Say that again. Envy is the sign of spiritual malnutrition. It it comes when we're not satisfied with God. When we start looking for satisfaction in other things, whether it's your job, whether it's your preferences, your own family, if your ultimate satisfaction comes from anything that isn't God, it's an idol. And when God provides abundantly beyond anything we could possibly ask for or think, Envy is one of the most counterintuitive things we can do to God's nature. That we look at his abundance, his care, his unchanging love towards us, and we say we'd rather have something else. See, when we don't ask God 
it fundamentally comes from a lack of trust. Fundamentally comes from a lack of trust. Because we look to other things or we think that we can get the things that we want our way. And here in verse 3, James says very specifically that even when we do ask God, you ask with wrong motives. You ask with wrong motives. That that when you ask God for things, God doesn't answer your prayer. Because the very thing that you want comes from the wrong place in your heart. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is God a means to get what you want? Do you view God almost like a genie in a lamp? Every time that you rub your hands together, you hope that God gets you what you really want. There was a younger man at, at my church recently that, that was bummed out because God had not answered his prayer. Uh, one, one of our church sisters rejected him when he asked him out on a date. So he's in a house. I'm talking with him. I spent 45 minutes listening to him just pour out his heart in just outward anguish. And, and he kept saying this phrase. He said, you know, I've done so much for God. I've done everything that he's asked. Why can't God answer just one of my prayers? Just one, please. Just one. I listened to him, pouring out his heart, trying to be a good pastor, right, for 45 minutes. And then eventually he was like, John, aren't you going to say something? I told him, well, bro, I'm going to be honest. I'm happy to just keep listening to you. Um, or I could, I could give you a difficult word if you want it. And he was like, oh, hit me. Like, give me the difficult word. And I looked at him. I said, brother, maybe the reason why God isn't answering your prayer is because your prayer stinks. <laughs> because your prayer stinks. How many of you have stinky prayers? Right? Where you ask God for something, but you know that it's not really coming from the right place. That you hyperfixate on, on what you want to get. How, how you can achieve your goals. And you want God to step on board with, with your plan. See, when you do that, you're not really honoring God with what you do. What you're actually doing is engaging in idolatry. You're actually offering up a stinky prayer. And God loves you too much to say yes to what you want. We know this, right? Part of loving someone involves saying no, even when they really want it. That when your child wants to play Fortnite for eight hours, that sometimes saying no is the right thing. And we as adults have different desires all the time that spring up within our hearts. And even when we go to the Lord and we ask him for those things, that our loving father looks down at us and out of love for us says no to those prayers. See, the, the motive to, to spend what we have and to obtain our goals becomes fundamentally selfish. It's fundamentally selfish. And that selfishness becomes a black hole of desire. It never satisfies. If you look to something to, to fill in the vacuum inside your heart, whatever that thing is, so long as it's on planet Earth, it's not going to fulfill you. And so you're going to look to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and, and as you keep looking and, and looking and looking, your frustration and your angst begins to build. And what comes out of your heart is angst and wrath 
and selfish motivations. And that leads to conflict with brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, what James is trying to point out is that fixing relational conflicts with other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? interacting with other human beings, isn't just about giving you tips, right? about saying, I feel instead of you. But it actually comes because our entire framework for thinking through what we want is fundamentally disoriented. That's faulty at its very core. The issue isn't human beings around you. It's actually your heart. It's actually your heart. He continues in in verse 4. Read with me. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. An enemy of God. See, when we desire things that are not God, when we look to anything else for our ultimate satisfaction, the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. And when we think about idolatry, most of you don't have golden statues that you walk into in your house and and lie prostrate before and seeking for a good harvest. But we have all sorts of desires that aren't God, right? And those things might even be good desires. You might want to excel in your job or, or want to see your family flourish or even see the church kind of meet your dreams and, and your prayers for what Risen could eventually look like. And those things are all good. But if they take the ultimate place in your heart for what satisfaction looks like, those good things become God things. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. You see, what happens when we uh, engage in idolatry is that our idols begin to lead to evil desires. We start to look for other means to achieve our ends, our goals. And those evil desires and that vacuum causes an inner battle within us, which then overflows into an outward battle in our relationship towards other people. And if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, we partner all the time with people who, care, who share common values to achieve common goals, right? You guys are all here as a church because you share a common value. You share Jesus Christ. And you love Jesus. You want to pursue Jesus together. You think about your work. You want to produce excellent work. You want to flourish in your business. You want to win your soccer game. Whatever it may be, you share common values with people in order to achieve common goals. And the issue with idolatry and the way that affects your relationships with other people is that when you have a desire that isn't God, right? When you, when you start to prioritize something that isn't Jesus, you start to put your idol's jersey on, right? And then what happens is you see another person's idol and you realize that you're wearing different jerseys, which means then you're in competition with them. And that causes division. See, there's a reason why the Israelites kept bickering with Moses. It wasn't just because they were hungry or, or because they were thirsty. The primary issue with the Israelite people was their idolatry. Right? Moses kept calling them out whenever the Israelites would switch teams. He would come down from the, from the mountain and he would say, hey, stop worshiping this golden calf. And the Israelites wouldn't like that. Stop worshiping your comfort. Israelites 
wouldn't like that. See, if you're beefing with other Christians, it's probably a good sign that you're worshiping a golden cow and not the living God. And that's my pun for the morning. And when we're Christians, God doesn't view our idolatry just like sin in a general sense, that you just did something bad and saying, hey, stop doing the bad thing. God views our idolatry like adultery. Adultery. The, the word that he uses here for adulterous people literally translates to adulteresses. That, that when you're in Christ, when you've placed your allegiance in God, that, that God becomes our husband. And we as a church are, are Christ's bride. And whenever we engage in idolatrous desires, whenever we begin to prioritize things that aren't God, we commit idolatry. That our selfish desires isn't just our own kind of preference that we may try to dress up with holy wording. It's actually cheating on God. And friendship with the world is hostility with God. It's hostility with Him. Sometimes we confuse being winsome with being friends with the world. Being friends with the world. Let me be clear. We want to be winsome. We want to be as charitable as possible, right? If you're, if you're not a Christian, you're visiting us here this morning, I don't, I don't want to like come up to you and just randomly elbow you in the face. It's, it's not any Christian's desire. But we also don't want to compromise what we believe for the sake of cultural engagement or, or trying to engage culture in a way that, that they would see as palatable. That, that what James is saying here is that there's fun, something fundamentally different between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Right, that if you're going to follow Jesus, that there are going to be some points where you're just not going to be able to align with the world. So, so let me say two things. Number one, don't let someone reject Christ because you're a jerk. Right? That's, that's not the same thing as having conviction. Right? You can have conviction and still be a nice person. Right? But if someone rejects you because you're holding on to the convictions that Christ gives you, right, that's not a sign of of your need to do more for them, it could be an indication that you guys have different allegiances. That you have different allegiances. You see, correct division is better than corrupt unity. Correct division is better than corrupt unity. Let's look at verse 5. Or, do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? God jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell in us. That the Holy Spirit that dwells in us and, and all of His children, that God jealously longs for that. And that word jealousy seems a little weird, right? I mean, Oprah has been really open that the reason why she doesn't consider herself to be a Christian was because she heard the Ten Commandments when God identified Himself as a jealous God. And she just couldn't stand it thought that God would be jealous? It almost sounds petty. Like suddenly God becomes a, the ringleader in Mean Girls. Right? Just spiteful. Jealous if we turn a side eye towards anything that isn't him. And, and it could seem bad and warranted, almost even pathetic, to think of God as a jealous being. But it makes a lot more sense when you view it in light of what James just called us, adulteresses. See, no one is surprised if someone gets upset because their spouse committed adultery. 
right? If you're jealous over your spouse's sin, that's not actually an overreaction or a petty behavior. That's actually the appropriate reaction. That when you're in a covenant relationship with someone, there's an expectation of exclusivity, right? That if I was married and I stood up in front of you and I said, I love all women equally, that there would be a problem. See, jealousy is the appropriate response to a violated covenant relationship. And God is in covenant with us. He's devoted himself to us. He desires good for you. And you've devoted yourself to him if you've trusted in Christ. And when we desire other things, when we begin to turn our gaze and, and look at other things to fulfill us, God is jealous in a right response to our idolatry. So our, our idolatry leads to evil desires. Our evil desires lead to an inner war, and that inner war over, spills over into our conflicts with one another. So what does God do in response? What God does might surprise you. He gives you more grace. He gives you more grace. That leads us to our second point this morning. Submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to God. Let's read verse 6. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God's response to our idolatry, to, to our rebellion, to our adultery, is to give you more grace. To give you more grace. That God's jealous response in, in response to our idolatry isn't to abandon you, but to give you more blessing. And then he quotes Proverbs in saying that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Shows favor to the humble. I could spend 35 minutes on this verse alone. I mean, there's so much good here. But let's just focus on that first phrase first, that, that God opposes the proud. If you're proud, God is going to oppose you. That if you think that you're self-sufficient, that somehow your justification for, for your plan and, and what you think is right somehow justifies you going against the Lord, maybe even justifying sin and sinful behavior against a brother or sister in Christ, what James is saying is that the Almighty God, the King of kings, who formed you out of the dust, is 100% opposed to everything that you stand for. And if you're going to duke it out with him, you're going to lose. But for the humble, God is going to give you grace. That for the humble, God is going to give you grace. I don't know how many of you feel tired this morning. Maybe you're going through a difficult circumstance in your life or or your work, or, or your family, and your feet felt heavy walking in, you can barely keep your head up. It seems like the entire life is just weighing down on your shoulders this morning. Maybe you feel brokenhearted, genuinely, over a sin that you've committed, and weighs on you this week. What James is saying 
is that what God wants to do with you isn't to beat you down, but to give you grace. To give you grace. Isaiah says that God will not break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick. And when you think about bruised reed, a reed that's dangling by a fiber, that God's so gentle with you in his hands that he won't let it break. Or a candle that's on its last flicker. That God's going to so care for you that he won't let that fire get out. Do you understand the kindness that God has towards you? It has nothing to do with your self-sufficiency or the strength of your stock or the, or the brightness of your flame. That, that if you've gone to Christ in the midst of your brokenness and your weakness, that's exactly where God wants you. That's exactly where God can begin to minister grace to you. God doesn't want to beat you down. He's a compassionate God, which means if you connect these two ideas together, the God opposing the proud, that even his objection to you when you're arrogant is fundamentally an act of grace. It's fundamentally an act of grace. Richard Sibbs is a super old Puritan who lived in England. He wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. If you ever feel discouraged, just buy the book and read it. It's like getting hugged by 10,000 clouds simultaneously. And he, he spends the entire book meditating on this verse about bruising the, not laying a bruisery break, not putting out a smoldering oak. And Richard Sibbs makes this fascinating kind of inference from that verse. He says, not only will God not break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick, that God in his sovereign, controlling care over our lives is actually the one that bruises the reed. That, that he actually is the one that bruises us. That, that makes the reed feeble and frail. And the reason is so that the reed will know that it's a reed and not an oak. If you feel like you need to stand on your two feet and keep it all together, I got some bad news for you. You're about to get pummeled. But the good news is that God's bruising of you is exactly for the purpose of giving you grace that you would never be able to have if God didn't put you through that trial, put you through that difficulty, or put you through that struggle. Can you see God's kindness here in verse 6? That's what God wants to do. He wants to give you more grace. So what should we do in response to that? Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What, what God wants from you, if you've engaged in idolatry, if you're beefing with another brother or sister in Christ, is to submit yourself to God, to repent, to choose a different allegiance, to come back to the Lord. And, and the idea of submitting yourself to God means that you're going to have to submit yourself. 
If God always agreed with every single opinion that you ever had, that's a pretty good sign that you're not worshiping the real God. Probably just worshiping a figment of your imagination. I mean, every child knows this. Every spouse knows this. Submission is not easy. It takes real work. It's a proactive submitting of yourself, making yourself lower and recognizing the authority of someone greater. And that's what God wants for you. Submit yourself. Submit your preference. Submit your desires to God. He also says here to resist the devil. That that our conflicts that we have with other people isn't just an interpersonal conflict. There's also a spiritual conflict happening as well. Do you realize that Satan wants to divide you? That he prowls like a lion seeking to devour you? To break apart this church? To break apart your elders? To break apart your relationship with other brothers and sisters that are gathered here with you? He wants to do that. And James wants to call attention to that and tell you, resist him. Resist him. And the promise here is that he will flee from you. When he will flee from you. You have to resist the devil. Because if you don't resist Satan, he's going to cause you to resist against other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to cause division. The, the last command that you see here is to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Spurgeon says two things about this verse. Number one, it's a command, not a request. He's not asking you to just come here hoping that you really do it. He's telling you, draw near to God. Second, the command implies that you can. That you can. That that when you go to God, you're not bothering him while he's busy with other stuff. You're not intruding on the Savior. He wants to save you. So wash your hands. Purify your heart. It's better to grieve, mourn, and wail. It's better to acknowledge wrongdoing. It's better to look at beef in the face and address it. To confess your own sin first. To acknowledge it. See, repentance isn't just resolving to do better next time. It's actually acknowledging that the wrong has been done and making things right. Making things right. Let's finish out here. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The point of all these commands is to humble yourself before the Lord. And the beauty of Christianity is that when you lower yourself, that's precisely the way that you get lifted up. That if you're low, God will make you strong. See, humility is like roots on a tree. The deeper that you go, the higher you can grow. That's what God desires for you, to be humble. Last point here for us this morning. To cease slander. To cease slander. Let's look at verses 11 through 12 here. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? See, here you can understand why James spent so much time on humility 
in your heart. Because how can anyone be arrogant when they stand next to a holy God? When you see Christ's grace administered to you, any entitlement or expectation goes out the window. And when that angst is released, when that pressure valve is, is finally released, how could you possibly slander a brother or sister? See, this is not talking about confronting one another about sin. You should absolutely do that. That's an act of love. Right? This is talking about slander. Talking about another person or someone in a way that doesn't meet these three criteria. It needs to be helpful. It needs to be necessary. and needs to be edifying. Right? Just because something's true doesn't mean that it's not gossip. It needs to be helpful. It needs to be necessary. It needs to be edifying. And anything outside of that falls under the category of slander. And we love to spill the tea, don't we? I mean, juicy details about how someone's doing, right? talking about so-and-so. I mean, slander elevates ourselves over other people, right? I mean, why do you think Jersey Shore was so popular? I don't think anyone, right, lived their lives aspiring to be like those people, right? People don't watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians because they aspire to be like them, although some people do. The reason is because you watch that show in order to judge them, right? You're trying to judge them. They're bad people. You get to see them do bad stuff, and you laugh at the ridiculousness, and as you put them down, you feel better about yourself. That's what those shows do. It's easy when you're a Christian, when you're a sinner, to look at other people that, that live a life that you might not want to live and laugh about them or sneer at them or chide them or giggle at kind of the ridiculousness that you see over your shoulder. And as you do that, you're actually becoming worse than them. You're actually becoming worse than them. You see, if you judge others using the law, what James is saying is that you're actually worthy of more criticism than they are. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm, I'm glad that you've put up with this sermon so far. You might be listening to me and you're like, ding, 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 John, this is exactly why I hate Christianity or why I would never believe it. You guys are all hypocrites, right? You stand up on your moral tower and you wag your finger against everyone else. And meanwhile, I'm here, I'm just living an honest life. I have two things to say to you. Number one, I want to affirm your hatred of hypocrisy. I think that you are totally warranted in your criticism of Christians being hypocrites. And let me tell you something. God hates hypocrites more than you do. That's part of the reason why he calls it out here. That if you judge another brother or sister or put yourself on some moral pedestal, you've automatically kind of disqualified yourself from any kind of moral comparison. The second thing I would say to you is that Christians are not people that are claiming not to be hypocrites. Right? Christians make mistakes all the time. Right? If you look at a highlight reel of my last week, you're going to see sin after sin after sin after sin. The difference between Christians and people who are not Christians isn't that we're not hypocrites, or that we think that we're morally superior to you, but that we're repentant hypocrites. That we're repentant hypocrites. Hypocrites. The, the truth of the matter is that we're all sinners before a holy God. And I, just as much as you, deserve to be judged under a holy God and be punished and receive his wrath forever. But the good news that I have that I want to offer to you this morning, if you're not a Christian here, 
is that God, out of his kindness, sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. He lived the perfect life that we could never live. And God, on the cross, poured out the punishment that you and I deserved on his shoulders. And Jesus died on the cross, and three days later, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. So the promise for you and I is that if you turn from your sin, if you subject yourself to this God, if you lower yourself, if you recognize that you're sinful, there's nothing that you can do to make yourself clean. That God won't just reject you because you're a hypocrite, but he'll actually cleanse you. Not because you're awesome, but because he's gracious. That's the good news for you. We would love to talk to you more about what it looks like to follow Jesus. You could talk to me. You could talk to Trevor. You could talk to pretty much anyone here. There's not really a better subject that we would like to talk about than Jesus Christ. So we're glad that you're here. Talk to anyone around you about what it may look like to follow Jesus. Now, what I want to do with the last couple minutes I have here in verse 12 is really do a workshop on what good confrontation looks like, right? Because you, you read James 4.12, right? And it says there's only one lawgiver and judge, but, but who are you to save and destroy? But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And you read that, and you think about yourself and your own sinfulness, and you think about verses like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, judge not, lest you be judged. If you're feeling the effect of the text, like the Spirit wants you to feel this morning, you might think to yourself, I'm never going to talk to anyone about anything ever. That's not what God wants for you, right? So, so how do we judge people appropriately? Well, first thing, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, okay? So consider this like a mini topical sermon on confrontation within a broader sermon about not judging your fellow brother or sister in Christ, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's talking to a Corinthian church who probably felt the weight of a good Christian principle like this one and was ignoring sin in their church. They had a guy that was sleeping with his dad's wife. It's pretty bad. For whatever reason, they weren't doing anything about it. They weren't doing anything about it. And then if you look at verse, let's see here, chapter 5, verse 2. Paul's response to their inaction is that they are proud. That they're proud. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning right, and put this man out of fellowship with you? And then he concludes at the end of chapter 5. He says in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Aren't you to judge those inside? God will judge those who are outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul is pointing out something that every single church everywhere struggles with. That we're often too busy pointing the fingers at those outside of our walls and ignoring the sins of those inside. Right? And what Paul is saying is that if there's sin inside your church, you have a responsibility to go address it. That if you're a member at Risen and you see a brother or sister in Christ as engaging in sinful behavior, that you're supposed to go confront it. Okay, so don't misunderstand what James is saying. What James is saying is actually right in line with what Paul is talking about. What James is telling you not to do is don't talk smack about them. Right? Don't judge them. Don't put yourself above them. Right? Don't give them the weird side eye when you walk in Sunday morning. Right? And then what Paul is saying is in addition to that, go talk to them. 
right? Go see how their soul is. Speak truth into their lives. But how do we do that without getting arrogant? Well, for that, let's go to Matthew. Matthew, I believe it's either chapter 5 or 6. Matthew 5, 6, hang on. Let me find it here really quick. Matthew, here we go. This is what happens when you forget to put something in your notes. Let's see here. Yeah, Matthew chapter 7. See, people don't read the rest of this passage after Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Right, let's look at what Jesus has to say. It says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Right? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay? So notice what he's saying here. He's saying that if you notice sin in a brother or a sister's uh, in your church, what, what that is, is it's a speck of sawdust in their eye. Right? It says, meanwhile, you're standing there, and you have a huge wooden plank just beaming out of your right eye. Okay? And what Jesus is saying is, you should treat your own sin with greater gravity, with greater seriousness than you ever do anyone else's. That if you're a mature person in Christ, you should carry the same heart that Paul does. That you are the worst of sinners. Right? That you desire to grow in your own godliness far more than you desire to correct anyone else. But Jesus doesn't say, don't confront the person. What does he say? He says, first, take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? That if you actually want to properly love your brother or sister in Christ, what you need to do is take your plank out, and then you go confront them. See, it's different when you receive criticism from someone that you know loves you, right? Someone that you know cares for you. Someone that you know takes their own sin more seriously, right, than, than they view your sin. It comes off different, it lands different, and it puts our heart in the right place where we're not interested in defending ourselves, right? That, that if I go confront a brother or sister in Christ at my church about sin that they have, and they say, John, what about this thing that you did last week? I'm going to switch gears so fast. I say, hey, I'm totally all ears. Show me how I sin. Show me how I can repent. I want to grow in Jesus. And after we've resolved that, and I've Ask God for forgiveness. I'm going to go right back. I'm going to say, hey, there's still a speck of sawdust in your eye. Right? So what you do is you actually confront. You see, the, the key to avoid gossip and slander in your church is a genuine Christian humility that leads to a genuine Christian confrontation. Okay? That's what, that's what I desire for you. That's what God desires for you. So, so let me encourage you as a church that as we take communion here together, that as you recognize a body with one another, if you have conflict with someone, if you have beef, ask them for forgiveness before you take it.
Leave your gift at the altar. Right? Take time to reconcile with your brother or sister in Christ. That's what God wants for you. If you're ever the recipient of hearsay or a prayer request that you know really isn't a prayer request, I want to encourage you to be something that we encourage our church members to be. Be a gossip stopper. Be a gossip stopper. This is what I mean. Early on in our church, we were a church revitalization. We had a church about 20, 25 people, and it was super toxic. My first Sunday in, in 2019, we had someone stand up and yell at the guy giving the announcements. And someone else stood up to yell at the guy who was yelling at the guy giving the announcements. Right? And I would just get words all the time from people about, hey, did you know so-and-so said this or so-and-so said that? I want to encourage you, if that ever happens to you, be a gossip stopper. This is what I mean. Someone comes to you and goes, hey, so-and-so did this. I want you to say, hey, I appreciate that you seem to care for this person enough to notice this thing. I think you should tell them. Have you talked to them? They go, no. You say, okay, well, you should go talk to them right now. I can go with you to go talk to them, right? And if they say, no, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. I don't know if it's my place. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go to that person and tell them that you told me this thing because you care about them. I'm sure that they'd be super open to hearing what you have to say, and we'll come to you. You know what happens after that conversation? They never come to me with gossip ever again. <laughs> right? And here's what happens. When everyone has that attitude of assuming the best in the other person and seeking to genuinely encourage one another, gossip has no oxygen to breathe. It gets choked out. It has no room to exist. That gossip either has to die or has to go somewhere else. I want to encourage all of you to be gossip stoppers. Not just because gossip is insidious, it is, but because the Lord loves you. Because he saved you from the deepest, darkest depths of hell and shown you grace. And now as you interact with other sinners who have been saved by grace, you have the opportunity and privilege to carry on the attitude of your Savior and embody Christ-likeness in your love and care for your neighbor. Let me close our time in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. We know that's easy to understand and hard to obey. So we ask, God, that, that as we take communion together, as we interact with one another, that you would bless risen church, that they would embody Christ-likeness in this passage here in James, that they would put slander to death that they would put to death any sinful or selfish motivation, that they would submit themselves to God. They can only do this by your strength. And so we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen.